I miss a green, for example, I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Welcome back to another Fried Egg Podcast and another edition of our Superintendent Series, which is brought to you by Toro. Americans like our utility vehicles the way we like our U.S. Open courses, rugged. A winner needs to do it all in tough conditions. And Toro's new Workman UTX line is here to get the job done. Any job. Snow and ice removal, tree maintenance, transporting equipment or materials, whatever you need, this commercial-grade, smooth-riding, four-wheel-drive monster has your back. The Workman UTX's proprietary governing system unpairs ground speed and RPM, so the operator can limit the machine's speed without gutting the power. Higher RPMs when more oomph is required, less RPMs and less fuel consumption when it isn't. That kind of all-around performance is what champions are made of. Follow at Toro Golf on Twitter and reach out to your local Toro distributor to schedule a demo. Today's episode is with Cape Arundel's superintendent, Brendan Parkhurst. Brendan has been there for 20 plus years uh, at Cape Arundel. This is a golf course in Kenny Bunkport, Maine that I, Garrett Morrison, Will Knights, uh, and Cameron Hurtis visited in the fall. Uh, is somebody asked me recently what, what golf course made the most biggest impression on me in, uh, 2022. And my response was Cape Arundel. The greens are incredible. It's a, it's a really cool place. And it's a course that has done a restoration with Bruce Hepner over the years. This is not a golf course that's done like your full shutdown. This has been a, a piecemeal, you know, year after year improvement and they continue to improve it. So it's an, a unique place that part of the country that we haven't really profiled Maine, uh, which has its own unique conditions and, uh, it's right on the coast. So it has some, you know, environmental issues. And, and Brenda talks about all the things that, uh, go into maintaining Cape Arundel and it's a wonderful place that everybody should check out. So without further ado, here is Brendan Parkers. I gotta ask, uh, cause the, the Corn Ferry Tour event in Maine, or I, I think it might not exist anymore. It was the the Live Work in Maine uh, Championship, and always just a kind of funny name for everything. I know it's like the tourism kind of board uh, saying, but how is it living and working in Maine? Uh, I love it. I you know I, I grew up about an hour and a half south, just outside of Boston. Moved here twenty one years ago. It's it's great. Um, we're in Southern Maine, so close enough to Boston, you know, not too far to New York. Uh, we live in a town that has beach access, and then it's maybe an hour and 15 minutes to the closest ski mountain. So it's great. We love it. Yeah. What are what are you doing in the winter uh, at Cape Arundel? I've, you know, you guys closed down, but what what's the, you know, winter month maintenance schedule look like and what type of uh, stuff are you trying to trying to do that during those months? So course closes late. We really don't close until I think it's the 26th this year, 26th of November. Wow. And I keep 
myself and six guys on staff. And it's basically what we do is as soon as we shut the shut the doors to the golfers, we start getting ready for next season. Um, it's a relatively short winter. Uh, we like to be back out on the course by mid-March. Um, so that gives us, you know, with time off for the holidays, that gives us, you know, roughly 10 weeks to to get all the inside stuff done before we're back outside. Um, so equipment maintenance, indoor work like that, uh, working on course furnishings, and basically preparing for the spring. So cor- course furnishings like the pins, the flags, the cups, the stuff, the benches, all sorts of stuff you see on the course. Yeah, we make our all our own tee markers. Line everything up in the shop. It, we turn we turn our uh, our maintenance shop into a paint shop. Uh, same thing with the benches. Um, make sure all those boxes are checked. You know, so we're ready to to get started. Mm-hmm. Uh, equipment. We, we I think we have 130 pieces with serial numbers. Everything uh, gets through soup to nuts, oil change, spark plugs, etc. And a lot of times we'll try to refurbish one or two pieces every every winter. So we keep uh, a, a tech on staff. A full-time uh, equipment technician, and he's got an assistant full-time that we keep busy all year round. I imagine with the equipment shortages, I, I you know one thing that you know ca- casual uh, golfers that aren't really tuned into turf probably don't know is that much like the car industry, the the turf equipment industry is you know there's a there's kind of a shortage, long waits to get new equipment. Has the uh, has the mechanic become? you know, like the, the, one of the most vital employees on, on a turf team. Yeah, there's no doubt. You know, I was given the chance 20 years ago to hire an assistant or a mechanic. And uh, the first person I hired, I chose a mechanic and we, we lived that way for several years. Just, just me and the mechanic as the top two without an assistant. So yes, certainly. So uh, with, with shortages, you know, we have to, we have to predict ahead on what we're going to need, try to increase inventory if we can. Um, we've got pieces of equipment that we ordered last September that we're, we're not going to see this year. Um, so that stuff's still real. We would think, you know, coming up on three years of doing this, that it would get better, but, you know, equipment that I order now, we might not get until the end of next year. So it's, that stuff's still very real and something that we have to plan for. I was, I was curious. This is just a question that I was, I was wondering about while I was out there playing. Um, the golf course, obviously, you're on a small footprint, but what meanders kind of through the property, it forks and, and crosses a few different holes, is the Kennebunk River. It's a tidal river. Uh, so what that means is obviously, you know, for listeners, is that the ocean tides kind of dictate it, and, and the water comes right from the ocean. So when it's high tide, the water ri- rises. When it's low tide, we were out there. I mean, it's somewhat almost like no water in the river. Does that, does the tidal nature of that cause any, you know, is it, is a tidal river different than just say like a regular river or a stream or a creek that you'd see at a normal golf course? Are there any maintenance considerations that go into that? There's definitely maintenance considerations and those are all focused around, you know, the, the tidal rise and fall twice daily. So it's a 12 foot difference between low tide and high tide. And that's pretty significant. So when it's high tide, We've got six hours to lose 12 feet of water, and that creates a, a pretty severe current. Um, so the riverbanks that are along, you know, a good portion of the golf course are constantly being eroded. And we've, we took on a big erosion project maybe 10 to 12 years ago, took on another smaller one, and we're constantly monitoring 
the golf course for areas that are going to need to be uh, buffeted against erosion. How how do you fight erosion? Uh, you know, there's a lot of permitting involved, um, but basically lining the uh, riverbank where we're, where we're allowed to with, with large rocks uh, to prevent uh, us losing any more of our property to erosion. And then what, what was the other aspect? So the, you know, this whole, the whole idea that um, tides have been increasing in height with time. And when I started, you know, the first hole is, is probably the lowest point on the property, that, that gully there on the first fairway. That might have flooded once or twice a year on a high tide. Now that's occurring uh, once or twice a month. And that's salt water, and it will kill grass. So we've had to we've had to deal with that just over the last ten years. That more the increased frequency of flooding in that area. Interesting. I, I mean, it, it, being there for twenty one years outside of the tides, is there anything else that you've noticed just change in terms of whether it be weather wise or or maintenance, like things that have been maybe become more challenging from just the the way that the the world has changed. Yes, um, just in the last three or four years, you know, winters haven't haven't been as colder, and, and you know whether that's a short term pattern or a longer term indication of what's to come, that remains to be seen. But with those those warmer winters, um, you know, we're seeing pests, insects, pests specifically survive that didn't survive before. Um, things like the annual bluegrass weevil or or nematodes, things that a cold winter might kill off. We're having to account for those where we never did before. You know, for a good solid 18 years, we maybe saw one or two ABWs on the golf course. Um, not too far south of us, they're a major problem. And now they're a major, they've become a major problem for us. Nematodes, which might have been killed off in an extremely cold winter, it's not happening anymore. So we have to account for those in our spray program. And we didn't have to do that before. That's increased spraying on the golf course, increased uh, money in the budget. So that's that's been a big thing for us, certainly. And then there seems to be a shift from uh, falls are warmer, and then spring spring stays cooler longer. Uh, April and May are probably the March, April, May are probably the worst months up here in Maine. It's it's brown. The trees take forever to green up. Um, you know, people are anxious to hit the ground running in May to play golf, and we oftentimes don't fully leaf out on trees until the end of that month. So. That's that seems to be a little shift, also. That's that's probably what we'll see at uh, Rochester next year for the PGA. Not a lot of leaves on trees. <laughs> it's uh, probably a similar climate. You might be right. With the with the tide, how tide rising? Is there anything you can do to prevent? I mean, I, I prevent the flooding, or you know, is there? Have you guys talked about any ways to kind of fight the rising tides, or is that just you know? Is there pretty much nothing you can do? We have, um, you know, we're lucky enough that we're a good mile in from the ocean itself. So it's certainly not as severe as a, a coastal fronting property. Um, just berming up, building up the lower areas where we where we can. Uh, biggest issue, like I mentioned right now, is the first hole. We, we built up a pretty good berm there. Maybe eight or nine years ago, we had to raise the height of the, the second tee the second back tee there that kind of sits out on a peninsula um, that used to get flooded quite a bit. I've got some great pictures that I can share with you um, of that, that tee being totally submerged. So we raised that probably four or five feet up. Um, we were able to get the permitting to do that, demonstrate a need to do that. And that's, that's really been helpful. So yeah, basically trying to exclude the water from the property is, is how we're uh, handling that. And we've, you know, to this point we've been successful. 
funny, uh, quick, funny story about the tide. So uh, back when we did the irrigation install, it's about 14 years ago now, we chose a contractor from the, from the Midwest to do the work and they, they showed up to get their stuff set up in, in the evening, um, set their trailers up, got a, you know, a, a good look at the property. Next morning I'm at work and they show up and you know, I see a cart trying to chase me down on the golf course, two guys waving their hands and they get closer to us and they, they start screaming. They say, the dam, the dam broke. All the water's gone. You need to call somebody. The dam broke. And it took me a couple minutes to figure out what was going on. And they, they started pointing at the river and it was low tide. So they had come in the night before at high tide. And when they came back in the morning, all the water was gone and they had just assumed that there had been a catastrophe and all the water was gone. So that was something that we still chuckle about to this day. <laughs> that's really funny. <laughs> um, that's uh I mean, it's it's amazing how how different it is, you know. Like I I couldn't believe how little water is is in those in those rivers uh, when it's low tide. Like I mean, you you could walk out and pick up you know a hundred golf balls at certain points of the golf course where you know balls collect if you wanted. Yeah, it's and it's visually so much different too. It's I think it's much prettier at at high tide with all that that water in there, and that you know the high tide really only lasts for an hour and then it's going out and coming back in. So it's very dynamic. As I touched on earlier, you've been you've been at Cape Arundel for twenty plus years. Um, how would you say that your personal approach to maintenance and and mindset have changed over those twenty years? Uh, good question. You know, the first few years we were very very poor infrastructure, so we were constantly focusing on trying to regrow areas that had died over the winter. We held water into July until July. And then the water would evaporate and there'd be, you know, the mud spots would turn into dirt spots. So we, a huge area of focus for us was repair. As we've added infrastructure to the course, um, expectations have risen. So we've kind of shifted, been able to shift our, our efforts towards cultivation and, and really dialing in the, in the product. And that's really only started to, we've really only gotten dialed in over the last four, five, six years. You know, we, we didn't we, we didn't verify historically didn't verify fairways um, didn't verticut um, you know didn't spray fairways for disease or f- or fertility you know that stuff's really only happened in the last ten years um, but with that with those things happening now we've been really able to to tweak the product and, and dial it in whereas you know we're not not chasing mud as much as we had in the past. Interesting. It's uh yeah, I I mean I thought the conditions were were great when we were out there. It was uh it was it was really in stellar shape. Um you know, with the with the golf course, I think the thing that people will obviously take away the most when they go see Cape Arundel or see photos is is the wild greens. Is there a particular challenge to maintaining these greens with these massive slopes? Yes, there definitely is. Um you know, I think you guys might have mentioned it uh, in the in the piece that you did before, but it'd be very difficult for anybody to build greens like we have today. Um, you know, for for several different reasons. You know, my first season, uh, we were dealing with the the recent green expansions that Bruce had uh, put into play. You know, back in the late '90s, early 2000s, um, and just trying to keep grass on the on the mounds. You know, the the, the severe slopes. Uh, so we lost a lot of grass uh, my first summer 
trying to dry the greens out, remove thatch. Um, and the, the challenge was to get grass on those, on those humps. So that's one challenge there. Um, and that's, that's something that's, you know, has chased us ever since, truthfully, really hard to keep the tops of those grass on the tops of those areas. A lot of, uh, a lot of detail work, a lot of handwork uh, involved with that. This year, um, more than any in the past, we've kind of butted up against modern technology and the shapes of our greens, you know, maybe being the limiting factor to what we can do. We wanted to, we wanted to experiment with what our lowest mowing height was going to be this summer. We found it. It was too low, so we had to go, we had to raise that height back up, and that's going to affect green speed. Um, so we're, you know, we're, we're just about maxed out at, at 10 and a half because we can't cut those, those slopes any lower, uh, without the greens mowers, you know, plowing into the turf and, and scalping. Now, if we wanted to get faster, we'd have to consider, you know, taking out some of the contours and that's certainly what we don't want to do. Um, the flip side of that is with all the contours that we have, you know, 10 and a half is fast enough, anything faster than that. And they'd be unplayable. That's that's for sure. I, you know, the I was wondering that, and I saw you had triplexes. You you mow these greens despite the the uh, severe severity of the contours with triplexes, correct? We do, and that's that's been longstanding. Uh, triplex reel technology. It's the same reel that we would be using with a walking mower, perhaps a lighter footprint, um, you know, because the weight is spread out more. But we do use the triplexes. Um, originally started as a labor issue. And then because the technology came along, we realized that we were doing a pretty good job. I think a couple of courses are, move, have moved to triplexes on their greens. I think Medina has and Burning Tree have moved to triplexes. This year we started double cutting every day. So years past, greens were getting cut six times a week. Um, that jumped up to 14 times a week this year. Um, and that's, that's really been great. Uh, for playability. Um, and the greens have, have taken it pretty well. Just that increased traffic. What does double cutting, uh, you know, achieve? Is it just uh, smoother? Yes. And you're, you're removing much more grass. You know, you could, you could cut a green six times and still get grass on that sixth cut. So we get, you know, a certain amount of grass with the first cut and we might get the second cut might get, depending how fast the turf is growing, we might get, you know, 40 to 50% again with the second cut. So it's a, it's a, a way to get, um, you know, firmer, faster. It's going to firm up the surface to help with uh, thatch reduction, all about green speed. You know, how, how have green speeds changed over the, you know, your time at Cape Arundel? Obviously it's, it's been, you know, over 20 years. I, anecdotally as a kid, I remember, um, you know, greens weren't all fast and, you know, now it seems like, Every course has the ability to have relatively fast greens thanks to the technology and inputs that go into greens nowadays. Yes, um, they've certainly increased. And, you know, this season they were faster than they've ever been, more consistent than they've ever been. Um, you know, but not, they didn't, they haven't increased by a huge margin. We might have been at, you know, eight to start the season back in the early 2000s and, you know, with dry conditions, we'd get up to nine, nine and a half. So we're really not trying to move past 10 and a half. So they haven't increased a lot. What's, what's changed is the consistency, the day to day, you know, being able to provide green fast green speeds earlier in the season 
and then keep them consistent throughout the season. You know, it's all about getting those greens back to being firm after a rainstorm. Um, that's, you know, being exposed to the weather 365 days a year, you know, can't ma- we can't keep the rain off of it, so we need to be able to get the greens to drain out as quickly as possible. Uh, and that's, you know, that's another way that we've been able to increase green speeds over the years. Your golf course's uh, footprint is really small. It's, it's only 5,800 yards and, and, you know, it occupies a small piece of property. What advantages does that give you as a superintendent uh, having such a small fo- footprint? And are there any disadvantages? Yeah, I think the the advantages we can get around the course very quickly. Um, pesticide budgets are probably going to be smaller, um, just because there's not, you know, not as much property to take care of. Maybe the disadvantages is that everything is in play on our golf course, um, so that we have to maintain just about every inch of that property for golf. It's not a lot, um, but it uh, it all demands our attention. Um, we focus on down the middle, and then we. You know, spread our efforts out to the edges of the property, and it's it's pretty much wall to wall, a high level of maintenance. Where do you get your crew from? Uh, locally, you know, I'd love it if we if we had a you know migrant labor force. Uh, that's what I dealt with when I was in uh, in the Met area, uh, right out of college. But we we draw locally. The challenge there is um, you know, we have to lay off sixty percent of our workers for the winter. Um, we spend a good deal of time training them in the season, and then hope that they come back. Um, but we've been successful at that, uh, even through the labor shortages during COVID. It's a great place to work, uh, great people to work for, and um, we've been able to pay a, a strong wage to outcompete uh, competitors in the area. So definitely uh, local. I think my farthest commuter right now comes for as a as a kid who's driving from New Hampshire every day. It's about a fifty-five minute commute for him, but mostly everybody else on the crew has. Um, you know, half hour, 15 minutes to a half hour commute. Now for a quick word from our sponsor, Toro. For more than a century with cutting edge turf equipment and irrigation solutions, Toro has had your front nine covered and your back nine too. In fact, Toro's always had your back, period. Toro is as committed to your long-term success as tour pros are committed to their shot. That's down to top-notch customer support from Toro and its dedicated local distributors, both of whom are passionate about delivering turf equipment and irrigation solutions that solve real-world problems. Follow at Toro Golf on Twitter and reach out to your local Toro distributor today. Now back to Brendan. So when you got hired, you were you jumped into a restoration effort at the golf course um, with uh, Bruce Hepner. Uh, you know what? What about his approach? Do you appreciate the most as a superintendent? You know, he's very protective of the original design and I, you know, he won't, he's, he, he's not easily swayed uh, by suggestions from green committees or, or course members. Uh, and that's not always easy to do to, to stand up to that. You know, fortunately he's in the, he's gotten himself into the position where he can, you know, if he, if people don't like his attitude, he can, he can leave, you know, he's got, he's, he's turning away work cause he has so much, but that's the most impressive thing about Bruce for me is that um, he tries to really, uh, protect the, the original intent of the original architect. What's been the process for restoring the course over time? How have you guys gone about planning and and the you know execution of restoring features? Um, you know, for the first eight years, 
of my time there working with Bruce, um, it was one or two small projects a year. Um, those bunkers on nine, those three bunkers were all we did for that, that first year in 2002. You know, we picked off selectees, um, redid bunkers where we could, you know, very piecemeal. We didn't have irrigation. We didn't have a good drainage system. So we, you know, we, we took on a, the club, you know, realized that, okay, you know, Bruce's, Bruce's thing was, well, you have, you have a gem here. You haven't messed it up. You know, this place can be spectacular with an investment. When I started, you know, my first memory of Cape Rundle was coming in in March and there's water everywhere. And I mentioned that earlier, that water, you know, middle, down the middle of seventh fairway puddles everywhere. Uh, and it's, we've got the the pitch to get it off the course. It just, it just wasn't getting there. So a big aspect of that was drainage, irrigation. Uh, we rebuilt all the tees, most of the bunkers. You know, that came about um, through that realization that it was time to invest a big chunk of money into the golf course. Um, master plan, uh, acquiring all the permits, and then doing the work. The, the first big part of that was, was putting in permanent bridges over, those, over the two river crossings. Um, you know, for my first eight years, and this was one of the interview questions, do you know how to build a bridge? <laughs> it was like, okay, maybe. Um, maybe I know how to build a bridge. Um, but for the first eight years, those there were the bridges that were there were not permanent. They would come out every fall and we'd reinstall them every spring because that river freezes the tide the, and the, the ice is still going to go up and down 12 feet. It would destroy these wooden bridges that we had. So they had to come out every year and we couldn't fully maintain the course until the bridges were back in and reassembling them was a, a two to three week process in the spring obviously had to be coordinated with the tide we'd have two hours where we could work in the river bottom you know carrying these uprights out and then uh, you know hoping the ice was out for the year and then spanning uh, spanning the length and, and you know building a bridge every April every May uh, in coordination with low tide so that was the first big thing that we did was getting these these bridges permanent it gave us three to four more weeks to have the golf course open fully and to be able to work on the golf course. So that was huge. Um, that was done a year before the, the bigger project of irrigation drainage and uh, tees and bunker work. Um, looking at irrigation, when I started, uh, everything was off street pressure. You know, the, the pressure that we were getting supplied from the town, there were you know, three or four heads for every green. You'd go over and manually turn those on when you wanted to water. You know, hopefully you were well enough ahead of play. And if somebody in the neighborhood flushed the toilet, one of those heads was going to turn off. It was you know, We were dependent on the amount of pressure that was being delivered for that time of day. Uh, the, four fire, the four greens across the river were watered with three-quarter inch hoses with a small lawn sprinkler. We'd, we'd drag a hose out of a box behind the green and, and turn on this three quarter inch sprinkler and move it around a few times to get water. Some tees had water. Most did not. Most of the fairways didn't have water, you know, and that's 19th, early 18th, 18th century technology, 19th, 20th century technology, sorry, that we didn't have. We were 60 to 70 years behind uh, golf courses in the area um, because we didn't have, you know, irrigation. I feel like you're you're painting a picture of a golf course 
that uh that like a ma and pa you might see it now if you go visit you know a ma and pa golf course that is kind of in a small town where you have these you know kind of rudimentary and in in a way you know is taking something from being kind of a a real feel job and making it much more obviously i'm not saying there's no feel in it anymore but much more regimented thing i mean the the bridges is a crazy thing to think about like you know not being able to get to part of your golf course for a, a large chunk of the year because you don't have a bridge right and not being able to open in the spring immediately because you didn't have a bridge and the tide wasn't going to let you put it in until next week um and that was you know We've got pictures of the, you know, the Bush motorcade going across these wooden bridges. It's like, oh man, I hope they hold up. They always did, you know. But uh, pretty incredible stuff. What's the Bush motorcade look like? What what did it look like in its heyday? And in, in and and I'm just it, with these small bridges. What was like the Bush motorcade when they were a when they were in in office? Um, so 43 was was in office um, when I started. You know, on the golf course, it was a lot of golf carts and, you know, layers of security, kayaks in the river, uh, road, the road closed. Um, cool thing about the Bush family is they, you know, they wouldn't, they didn't want the whole golf course closed for the time they were out there. So you would always play early, get to the 10th green, and then the golf course would open for play. So increased pressure for security on the, on the secret service and the, and the local officials because of that. But um, you know, we're a semi-private golf course with members. Um, they weren't going to shut the shut the place down. So, yeah, when they were out there, a lot of golf carts. It was probably twelve vehicles when they entered the property: police cars, SUVs, uh, ambulances, um, and those all stuck around. And when he left, he left, um, and all that all that left with him. So imagine, you know, a, a parade of eight to ten golf carts going across this rickety wooden bridge. That's what that's what it was. What um in terms of the did, was there any uh constraints that would put on on what you could do from a maintenance standpoint when they'd come out and play golf? Yeah, we'd have to be we'd have to be ahead, well ahead. But you know, if we were working on a hole, especially you know, especially now, there's still a security detail that he has. Um, but you know, very personal with the crew, always took time to take pictures. You know, still does that to this day. Very personal. You know, today we just we'll stand back. You know, get off the green, off to the side, wave. We were much more uh, concerned about it when he was in office. Just starting earlier, you know, he was going to be out there at six. We had to be out there at five and getting out, just staying out ahead. It was always, you know, he was done within two, two and a half hours. So do our work, get out of the way, and then get back on the course once he leaves. You know, pretty easy. One of the things I'm taking away here is that if you are, are the president, you lose all ability to play a spur of the moment round of golf. Well, if, I think you can, um, certainly. It just becomes, a spur of the moment might be in an hour and a half, you know, and the word goes out, uh, advanced security team arrives, um, and they you know, they do what they can. Um, but, yeah, it's definitely much more difficult. Spur of the moment, you know, probably doesn't apply. Get, getting back to the uh, restoration work that you guys have done, um, it, was, there a, was there a moment in time that particularly stands out when you got maybe a green back to, to where it was or, and uncovered a, uh, something that was missing that you're like, wow, this is just something I didn't even know we had? I think the most drastic change to the playing surface that comes to mind the quickest was with the fifth green 
which is now our biggest green. It's got that, people call it a buried elephant in the front left corner there. You know, the green used to be behind that, half the size that it is. And through Bruce's work, it was expanded to, to double in size. And now it's got this massive hump right in the middle of it. And that's, you know, most of the, the bumps and humps we have are off to the sides. There's certainly severe contours within the green, but to have this massive hump in the middle of a green and to be able to expose that through restoration work was, was pretty neat. Spending so much time out there, you know, I, I have my favorite, I'm curious, what, what is, uh, what's your favorite green surface? Um, I think my favorite hole is 10, um, just because of the strategy that's demanded to play it. You know, 10's a cool green, a very cool green in itself with, with the back, the back hump and how small it is and how it, it doesn't necessarily face the direction of play. 15's a sneaky green kind of back there off the edge of the property. Um, but you can pretty easily put off the back of that thing when the greens are going. I really like three with the false front. You, know, you, you, you put a pin in the middle of the green to the left, which you're not going to have a problem if you just aim a little bit, aim at the pin or just beyond it. Um, but if, you, if you're a little bit short, man, you're, you're way out of play on that green. That's a big false front. Huge. Just eats eats balls with with the restoration. What were you guys primarily working off of uh, in terms of uh, materials to to know what to put back? Was it an old aerial? Was it old photos? What what resources did you and do you have at your disposal in terms of historical items? Um, we definitely had some old aerials to look at. There were some members who had who had been long and around long enough to say, "Hey, this you know there used to be a bunker here." You know, with Bruce, the amount of time that Bruce spent on the golf course early on, you know, I think he started in 95. Um, he was picking up on things that might have been there, you know, things like that. And then, you know, Bruce's knowledge of what Travis's intent for a golf course was. We had, uh, we've got the original, a lot of the original greens prints. Um, some of those have been framed, um, hung up in uh, our, 43 house at our, at our driving range. Um, so that was helpful. Uh, but the green contours hadn't really changed much. We just had to expand those. Um, we added some, some bunkers on some holes that, you know, we felt might've been there. I think it was, you know, during the, uh, the depression time or, or world war II, a lot of courses removed bunkers for ease of maintenance. We don't have a lot of bunkers anyway, so we really didn't add a lot back, but there were some areas that we did add bunkers to. What what was the process for uh, restoring the greens? How how did you go about uh, restoring the green edges and and getting greens pushed out? You know, for the most part, it was just done with mow, mow lines and gradually taking um, taking the height of cut back. You know, they had been green surfaces in the past, so they had, at one point in time they had been lowed at that height. It might have been thirty or forty, fifty years since they had, um, but you know, gradually mowing them down top dressing, overseeding, um, till you get to the point where you're dealing with maybe, you know, smaller areas that you have to, to cup out and put sod in. So not, not bringing in a lot of sod dealing with what was there and then interceding, overseeding and, and top dressing, uh, just a gradual, gradually getting those down. And that probably took four five, six years to get that perfect. And we're still today dealing with, um, enhanced top dressing in those areas. You know, greens have been top dressed for Consistently, I'm going to say for 40 years, the, the previous superintendent did a great job of that. 
Um, but the areas that weren't green before didn't get top dressed as much. So we're having to apply extra top dressing around the edges to continue to build up that, that layer of sand on the greens. Yeah. So instead of like stripping and smoothing out, some courses do that. You, your, your method has been to just additionally tra- top dress in those areas to even it out. Yeah. It's pretty hard to, to sod edges of greens and get them to blend. You know, that can even be a, a two to three year process to get those to look and even longer for the grass to match. You're going to get a much better color match and species match just by dealing what you have in place. With the master plan, is uh, are you guys done? What what does it look like moving forward? Are you considering continuing? I, I know you said Bruce was out working on the seventeenth green with drainage. Is there continuing work to be done? And if so, what what's what's left on the plan? So we just celebrated one hundred twenty six years, one hundred twenty five years last year uh, as a golf course. Most of the greens complexes are a hundred years old, exposed to weather three hundred sixty five days a year. So there's always there's always going to be something. The work on 17 was uh, an area on the back left corner that had settled three inches with time. It puddled up in the winter and then the grass would freeze and die. Um, we're doing a, a little, a smaller project on 10 where the, the left side of the green, where it's got that steep slope where it had just, it had sloughed off and, and moved. Gravity had taken the, the land down a little bit. There'll always be little things like that. Um, the shelf life of golf features is not extraordinarily long. You know, bunkers, 10 to 20 years. Tees, similar. Irrigation system, 25 to 30. Similar with drainage system. So we're 14 years out from the big work. And now now we're looking at, all right, what's, what, what's the future look like? Um, we just developed a, a 25-year capital plan, and that addresses tees, bunkers, That'll get into the irrigation. So it's been long enough that we need to start thinking about doing certain areas again. It never works, right? It's like uh, it's like you just are, are, are taking care of a giant yard, you know, for every, everybody that can relate to taking yeah. care of one yard. You know, you're just taking care of a giant one that's always got things that are changing and, and needs need attention. Um, when did you know that you wanted to be a, uh, a work in the turf industry? Uh, what, what point in your life did you know this is what you wanted to do? That's a great question. So I guess you can consider me a second generation superintendent. My uncle uh, was a superintendent for many years on Cape Cod. Uh, my mother's brother, Tom Flaherty. I knew from pretty much, I think, age 12 that it's what I wanted to do. Um, you know, getting to be outside, working on a beautiful piece of property. So it's different every day, uh, and you can make a, a pretty good living doing it. So I knew very early on that I wanted to do that. I worked on my first golf course, uh, graduated high school, and then moved down to Cape Cod with Tom when I was 18. Uh, the, the year before, I went to Penn State, and I tried to work as, as many as many golf courses as I could. Uh, until I settled at Cape Arundel, so I, I knew really early on that's what I wanted to do. That's, uh, I mean, what was the biggest shock? I guess you know you knew you wanted to do this when you started doing it full time. What, would you, if you could think back to that, what was the biggest adjustment? So I can remember I I, I lived with Tommy um, for the summer, the summer after I graduated high school, and we drove to work every day, and we you know talk about what we're going to do that day, and you know long term stuff, and. 
one thing that he said that stuck with me, he said, the toughest part of this job is, is the politics. And I was like, what? you know, 18 year old kid. I was like, what are you talking about? I'm, you know, I'm not running for elected office. I want to grow grass. You know, so that was, that was kind of the biggest surprise once you step into that, just the daily politics of, of, you know, being out there every day and, and running the golf course, not just with members or golfers, but even, even individual demands of the, your staff members, you know, uh, most important thing um, that I do is, is manage, you know, people and get, get my staff to see the golf course the way I see it. What's been, you know, what's been the best way for, for getting that message across, whether it be to the, to staff and um, staff members seeing the way you're, you see the golf course, but also probably members seeing that. Yeah. It takes a little bit of time to prove it out. It's not immediate, um, you know, with the staff you kind of have to show them that, you know, this is the right way to do it. Definitely giving them a voice. You know, I don't have all the answers. I don't see everything. Um, keeping an open door to suggestions, suggested improvements, um, different ways to do things. Um, patience, you know, not immediately dump, jumping to conclusions, taking the time to get to know uh, people and, and what their motivations are. You know, what you know, some people motivated by money, some people are motivated by praise, some people want time off. Um, Trying to figure that stuff out and being able to relate to to all my staff members as best I can. The politics internally with the club uh, and members uh, is there anything with the with the membership that has been a a big thing that you've overcome over the years? Is is it you know you know being there for twenty years? Is there something that was a constant theme early on that's kind of died off? And and how did that happen? For my twenty one years, I've worked for a great group of people. They love the golf course. Everybody cares about it. Um, majority of the work that we we did uh, was supported by private donations. So, you know, not, not too many challenges on that front. Um, there was times in the past where, you know, we, we, we knew we had to raise some money. Um, dues went up. Assessments were levied, you know, years ago. And, and we, we lost quite a few members. Um, some of those people ended up coming back because they realized that, you know, we were making the right decision in improving the golf course. So another issue we had is those four holes across the river. Um, those were on a hundred year lease and we didn't own those until the early two thousands. Uh, when we purchased those, they were owned by a woman who, uh, who was in a butter. She passed away. Her four children inherited the property and, and three of them agreed to sell the course and one of them did not want to. And that was a challenge uh, that resulted in the house that, that was built behind the 15th green that you might've noticed. So, you know, the, the positive is that we, we now own those holes and no longer had to really lease them. So that was good. Yeah. That had to be a, that would have been a tough pill to swallow if they wouldn't sell the land. Yeah. And it was, you know, at that point we were, had some history with the property where we you know, historical, historically taking care of it forever. Bruce was actually called in to testify about the, you know, does this really make sense to keep this as a golf course or can you change it and still have a house? And it ended up in our favor that the only change we had to make was maybe shortening that 15th hole by 10 yards instead of having a house built uh, where the 17th cross bunker is, you know? Um, and that was, that was an interesting few years, definitely. So that green, it got moved? It just kind of got flopped a little bit. Um, it was about 
five to 10 yards deeper. You know, there's the fence along it now, and there's a driveway back there. That was all trees before, no house. So grew it in in the back and shaved it out in the front. Um, not major. Um, it was you know, very fortunate that's all we had to do. All right, uh, Brendan, it was it was a great pleasure having you on. I uh, I I was very impressed. I you know I think I I got asked the other day about by somebody like what was the most uh, you know what was the course that stuck with you most in 2022, and uh, it was definitely your place. I you know it was uh, those greens are incredible, and I can't wait to come back out there. And uh, you know, thank you for coming on. You know giving us uh, insights into your, into your life and experiences at Cape Arundel. It's, it's a really cool place that everybody should try and get out to see. Thank you for having me, and, and thanks for coming out to see our place. We really enjoyed having you guys. Thank you for listening to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast and our Superintendent Series. This episode was edited by Meg Atkins. Meg, thank you. As a quick reminder, we've got obviously Black Friday. It's getting into holiday season. It's scary to say that. We're past Halloween. Uh, the Friday Pro Shop is stocked up. We've got a ton of uh, new gear in there, a ton of fall and winter gear. Check it out at proshop.thefriday.com and uh, get your favorite piece or something. Treat yourself. Treat a friend that you know loves the Friday. Uh, whatever it may be, uh, we will have a big holiday sale also. Uh, that will be coming around Black Friday. So check out the Pro Shop. I down what you what you like. We will have a sale around Black Friday. So thank you again for listening. We will be back with another episode this week. And, uh, you know, we'll finish the year strong on this podcast. We've got some good stuff in the hopper. So thanks for, thanks for supporting us. And we look forward to uh, finishing out 2022 on a high note.